Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. What seems to be the problem? Tire's gone flat. You got a jack and a spare? Yeah. We can get that fixed in no time. Tire's fairly new. Maybe you drove across a nail or something. That's how it goes sometimes. Was that a... Yeah, a gunshot? Somebody help me! That woman's in trouble! Uh, somebody help me! Oh no! Call the police! She's been shot! Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're opening our investigation into the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer. A well-known member of Georgetown Society. Who went for a walk one fateful afternoon in October of 1964. Along the towpath she traversed each day in Washington, D.C. And ended up shot and killed. Was she the victim of a random street crime? Or was this a conspiracy that reached into the highest corridors of power and involved some of the most prominent men in the capital? Officially, the question is still unanswered because the killing remains unsolved. This is episode 21 of Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories and episode 1 of Mary Pinchot Meyer. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any other podcast directory, as well as our website, parcast.com. That's parcast.com, P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. And make sure you don't miss anything by subscribing to the podcast. A new episode of Unsolved Murders is released every Tuesday. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, ParCast, to join the conversation. And now, back to Mary Pinchot Meyer. She was many things over the course of her life. A journalist, a pacifist, and a suspected communist. A wife, a mother, a divorcee. An editor, a painter, and a drug user. But in a reflection of the times, she was often defined by her relationships to men. The husband in the CIA, the brother-in-law who was one of the town's big journalists, the husband of her best friend from college, who worked as the country's top counterterrorism official. Not to mention the lover who was the president of the United States. That's right. She had an affair with John F. Kennedy. In fact, the two were involved right up until his tragic death. And less than a year after JFK was shot in a crime that engendered a cottage industry of conjecture and theorizing, Mary Pinchot Meyer was killed in a way that fueled similar speculation. Mary Pinchot was born in New York City in 1920. Her father was a wealthy lawyer who was a key figure in the Progressive Party and helped fund the socialist magazine The Masses. Honey, where's my tie? Her mother, Ruth, was Amos's second wife. I left it on the bed. She was a journalist who wrote for The Nation and The New Republic. What time are the guests supposed to arrive? Don't worry, nobody ever gets here on time. So the politics at home were very left-wing. Indeed. It might be said that the Pinchots socialized with the socialists. Come on in. As Mary was growing up, she met such left-wing intellectuals as Mabel Dodge, Robert La Follette Sr., Harold Ickes, and Louis Brandeis. Judge Brandeis, this is our daughter Mary. Pleased to meet you, Mary. Mary also had a younger sister, Antoinette, who was known as Tony. And they were raised in Milford, Pennsylvania, at the family home called Gray Towers. You know a family has money when their house has a name. Also power. Mary's uncle Gifford was a two-time governor of Pennsylvania. 
I get the picture. Well-to-do and influential family. And she attended the Brearley School in New York. Think Gossip Girl. And then Vassar College, one of the seven sisters of the Ivy League. So she was rubbing elbows with like-minded children. Exactly. In fact, as a teenager, she attended a dance at Choate, where she was introduced to a young man coming from a similar privileged background. Mary, this is my friend Jack. Hello, Jack. I would ask you for a dance, but I don't think your toes could take it. My toes appreciate your concern. How about we grab some punch instead? Hey, Jack, quit macking on my dame. Ah, John Kennedy himself. It was just a passing meeting, but their paths would cross again. But for now, Mary is back at Vassar. Where she met another friend who would play an important role in her life, Cicely d'Autremont. Cicely, what a lovely name. So fitting for a poet. (laughs) And so is Mary. (laughs) Who's kidding who? Mary's plain, but you're nice to say otherwise. Nonsense. Mary's a name with history. Look at all the famous Marys of the world. Mary Shelley, Mary Pickford, Virgin Mary, (laughs) Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. I could spring for one of those right now. I know. (laughs) That lecture was wacky. You want to? I hear this place down the street is the bee's knees. Sounds juicy. (laughs) Mary Pinchot would graduate from Vassar in 1942. Just six months after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And she found work as a journalist, writing for the United Press, a syndicate which put her articles in newspapers across the country, and magazines like Mademoiselle, which, though a fashion magazine, catered to, quote, smart women, and published works by the likes of Truman Capote and Sylvia Plath. This was an acceptable job for a woman at the time. Very much so. Many women would take a job after college less as a career choice and more as a placeholder until they got married. That may or may not have been Mary's plan, but in 1944, she met Cord Meyer. Let's grab a cup of coffee and talk about it. Are you really interested in my opinion, or are you hitting on me? To be honest, both. Cord was a Marine lieutenant who had lost his left eye due to shrapnel injuries in combat. If we could all work together, different countries, There is a path to peace. It's nice to see you have hope. Don't be cynical. Otherwise, we might as well give up now. And I refuse because the price is too high. You don't have to tell me about the cost of war. The two had similar pacifist views. Which may not have been popular since World War II was in full swing. That's right. This wasn't like Vietnam where there were public protests of the war. Still, it was reflective of Mary's upbringing. I forgot, Mary. Was this when you had Harold Dickey's over for lunch and when Franklin Roosevelt dropped by for dinner? Stop. I'm not going to apologize for my family. I'm just teasing. Of course you are. The couple hit it off. And in April of 1945... Do you, Mary Pinchot, take Cord Meyer to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. They got married. That spring, they both attended the UN Conference on International Organization in San Francisco, during which the United Nations was founded. Which makes for an interesting honeymoon. Cord was an aide to Harold Stassen, and his new wife was a reporter for a newspaper syndication service. So the newlyweds were as involved politically as they were personally. But the personal would soon take priority, because in November of 1945... It's a boy. The couple had their first son, Quentin. And in 1947... Look at how cute you are. They had their second son, Michael. Quentin, say hello to your baby brother. And Mary became a homemaker. Although not a typical one, she started taking classes at the Art Students League of New York. I was thinking of setting up a studio where I could paint. 
Sounds good, honey. And her love for art would play a role later in her life. She also continued her work with her husband. That's right. When Cordmeyer became president of the United World Federalists in 1947, an organization aiming to prevent another world war and protect democracy, Meyer and many others were concerned that the UN was too similar to the League of Nations it was replacing and would be ineffectual. The first thing we're going to do is boost membership. Anyone can join, unless they're a communist. Mary wrote the organization's journal. Cord, dear, did you read this over? Yes, it's perfect, Mary. Their happy home life continued as the couple had a third child, Mark. (gasps) Isn't he adorable? I don't want to sound like a bragging mother, but yes. (laughs) Just between us, do you wish you had a girl? What can I say? I only make boys. And the family moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hotbed of liberalism. But Cord Meyer became concerned about the work he was doing on behalf of a world government. I don't know if it's worth it anymore. What do you mean? I think the communists are infiltrating our organization. What are you going to do about it? I don't know, Mary. I don't know. Cord Meyer was at a professional crossroads, and soon he would get an offer that changed everything. At some point, while Mary Pinchot Meyer's husband, Cord, was working for the United World Federalists, and the family was living in the shadow of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cord Meyer was approached by an intermediary. How's the pie? Good, thank you. I really should be getting home to my wife and kids. Cord, when your country needed you during the war, you were there. Sure, but that was a long time ago. Not that long. And I'm willing to bet you'd be there again if your country asked. Who needs a one-eyed soldier? Don't sell yourself short. We need everyone. Look it over, will you? We'll talk next week. Check's taken care of. He was being recruited by the CIA. Exactly when Cord first started working secretly for the CIA isn't clear, but by 1951, he had been contacted by the man overseeing the agency's entire covert operations, Alan Dulles. Cord, I want you to come on as a full-time employee. So we'll have to move to Washington? Yes, but you'll love it. It's the center of the action. And what would I be doing exactly? Operation Mockingbird. What's Operation Mockingbird? I'll let you know as soon as you take the job. Cord took the job, of course. And that meant Mary and the boys were moving to the nation's capital. Let's tape up those boxes. The movers are almost here. They settled into the Georgetown section of the city. Cord, what do you think of our neighbors? I like them fine, Mary. But do they like us? Why wouldn't they? If I know you, Mary, you'll be the queen of society in no time. And Cord found out what he would be doing at the CIA. You're going to be a principal operative for what one might call media outreach. Media outreach? It's helpful to get our point of view out in the print and broadcast media. So I'm doing PR now? You're not naive, Cord. Changing hearts and minds is one of the levers of power. Soon enough, Cord and Mary became highly visible members of Georgetown society. That was quite a party, wasn't it? I'll say. That Catherine Graham is a spitfire. She's probably saying the same thing about you. And their social circle included not only prominent citizens of the capital, but friends within the CIA. James, you're sitting next to me. One of those friends was James Jesus Angleton, who was married to Mary's old bastard chum, Cicely Dautremont. Don't expect him to hold up his end of the conversation. No, I just want him to listen to me. Don't expect that either. But not everything was going as great as it appeared. In the summer of 1953, Joe McCarthy, the notorious senator from Wisconsin, Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? publicly accused Cord Meyer of being a communist. He is a loyalty risk to the U.S. government. And reportedly, 
The FBI looked into Mary Myers' past. Ma'am, I'm Agent Tolman and this is Agent Jones. Can we ask you a few questions about an old co-worker of yours, Mary Meyer? At the time, she went by her maiden name, Pinchot. Mary? I haven't seen her in years. But during the period you were working with Mary, did you ever have reason to suspect she may be a communist? It took the personal intercession of Alan Dulles himself, by then the director of the CIA, to defend Cord Meyer. I cannot say it any more strongly or forcefully. This man is a loyal citizen. In addition to the political pressures on the Myers, there were tensions at home. Don't forget we have the barbecue at the Truitts this weekend. I can't go. I'm flying to Germany in the morning. But you were just there. I'll be back next week. You're never home. The boys need a father, and I need a husband. It's my job, Mary. I I can't go to Radio Free Europe without going to Europe. Cord. Mary. I'll tell Anne you say hello. And then, on December 18th, 1956, tragedy struck. Mary! Mary! What is it? What happened? There's been an accident. It's Michael. No! Her middle son, Michael, just nine years old, was out riding his bike near their home and got hit by a car. The son of a CIA operative hit by a car? Sounds suspicious. Barry didn't have time for suspicion. She had to see if her son would survive. And would he? We'll talk about it after the break. And now, back to Mary Meyer's son, Michael. Arriving at the scene, Mary found her son's friend and her son's body. Mary, I'm so sorry. He didn't make it. It was a devastating blow. But for a time, it brought Mary and Cord closer together. I know it's a cliche. No parent should have to bury their own child. But that doesn't make it any less true. I'm here for you, Mary. However, the underlying problem in the marriage was still there. And in 1958, Mary finally pulled the plug. I want a divorce. At age 38, with two children and a troubled heart, Mary Pinchot Meyer was starting over. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now, the story continues. In 1956, Mary Meyer's sister Tony had married Ben Bradley, then the Washington bureau chief for Newsweek magazine. It was the second marriage for both. I'm still getting used to saying it. Mrs. Ben Bradley. The couple settled in Georgetown, where Tony helped her sister Mary in the wake of her divorce. I'm thinking about renting a place to paint. Don't be silly. You can use our garage. Really? Of course. It's a great space. We'll turn it into a studio. Mary threw herself into the world of art. Well, what do you think? It's fantastic. She was considered part of the Washington Color School. Mary, it's so vibrant and colorful. Maybe this one will go somewhere outside the garage. And it did. Mary's paintings went all the way to Argentina, where some of her work was displayed in the Museum of Modern Art in Buenos Aires. She also started a close relationship with the abstract minimalist painter, Kenneth Noland. How do you know when the work is complete? The key is to break down its very essence. Take away all that's unnecessary, and what is left, no matter how small, is what you want. And by a close relationship... Yes. Mm. Should I make us coffee? That would be great. Before last night, I thought you were only interested in my painting. You are a woman of many talents, Mary. These kind of liaisons were not unusual. 
Later, Mary's biographer would describe her after the breakup of her marriage. She was a well-bred ingenue, out looking for fun and getting in trouble along the way. Tell me about it. You don't need to know the details. Aren't you worried about the consequences? To be honest, no. Look, I've always done what was expected. Isn't it time I do what I want? Mary, you've turned bad. Have I? How bad was she? One day in 1961, a Secret Service man showed up in a limousine. Ma'am, I'm here to drive you. And chauffeured her to the White House. Do you do this often? Forget it, I don't want to know. Where she was met by the president. Mary, you are looking lovely today. Thanks, Jack. Let me show you around. Ah, the grand tour. Let me guess, this tour ended in the bedroom? Indeed, and this continued regularly through President Kennedy's term. Oh, Jack, what are we doing? I believe it is called fornicating. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what they call the Kennedy charm? The couple would rendezvous sometimes two or three times a week. And as the president's lover, Mary may have been privy to state secrets. Tell me, what's going on with Cuba? I think I was given bad advice. Well... At least now you know who your friends are. Then came a fateful day in November of 1963. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. It was the event that shocked the entire world. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become Uh, the 36th president of the United States. But it would have particular resonance for Mary Pinchot Meyer. You doing okay, Mom? Of course, Mark. Everything's fine. Mom, I'm old enough to know when that's a lie. I saw you crying. You teenagers catch everything. So? (sighs) The president. It's simply disheartening. Oh, yeah. Everyone's in a bad mood. Some of the little sixth graders at school are real scared. I'm not. Those commie assholes can't get us. Don't use that word. Commie? (laughs) Very funny. It'll be okay, Mom. I'm trying, Mark. That's it, though? Just the assassination? Yes, just the assassination. Mary had lost the lover, who had become an intimate part of her existence. Struck down in the prime of his life by a series of bullets. Little did she know, less than a year later, she would have her own day of reckoning. October 12th, 1964, a beautiful fall day in Georgetown. Just after noon, at the press room at police headquarters, a cub reporter overhears the radio dispatcher. Cruisers 25 and 26 report to the C&O Canal. I repeat, cruisers 25 and 26 to the C&O Canal. He recognizes those cars as ones assigned homicide, so he races to his own car and speeds to the scene. He runs to the wall overlooking the canal and sees a body curled up in a ball on the towpath. There are two men nearby on the street. What happened? We were changing the tire and heard a gunshot. There was a cry for help. Then another gunshot. We saw the body and called the police. I'm going down. How? There's a tunnel under the canal a little ways down. 
So the reporter went to the tunnel opening a couple hundred yards west and moved away the vines blocking the entrance, then walked through the tunnel, aware that he might run into the killer fleeing. But he made it through and out into the sunshine. Where were the police? They were coming from the ends of the canal, east and west. But by the time they got to the body, the reporter was already there. I'm with the Washington Star. Yeah, we know who you are. Just doing my job. Let us do ours. Stay away from the body. Sadly, that body would soon be identified as Mary Pinchot Meyer. Years later, the reporter would describe the victim. She lay on her side as if sleeping. She was dressed in a light blue fluffy angora sweater, pedal pushers and sneakers. I saw a neat, almost bloodless bullet hole in her head. She looked entirely peaceful, vaguely patrician. She had an air of Georgetown. If a reporter could get to the murder scene before the police, how secure was it? A good question. But the police had begun a dragnet along the canal, which proved fruitful. We found this guy. Look at him. He's soaking wet. Why are you all wet? I was fishing, and I went to get my fishing pole, and I fell in. That story became suspect when police went to the man's apartment across town and found his fishing pole there. So he told another one. I was drinking beer, and I went to sleep, and I fell in. The man's name was Ray Crump Jr. And he was now the prime suspect in the death of Mary Pinchot Meyer. And before we dive further into the investigation, I have something I want you to investigate. Oh, really? Yeah, it's our sponsor. And now, back to the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer. It's October 12, 1964, and the news of Mary Pinchot Meyer's murder is shocking her friends and family. I can't believe it. I was just talking to her. Ben Bradley had to go to the morgue and identify the body. Yeah, that's her. And later that night, while they were mourning at home, there was a call from Mary's good friend Ann Truitt. Ann was in Tokyo because her husband James had been made the Japan bureau chief for Newsweek. Hello? Ben, it's Ann. So you've heard. Is James there? Angleton? I need to talk to him immediately. He's not here. Is there anything I can help with? Ben, Mary was keeping a diary. I see. I don't know what's in it, but... I can only imagine. I just don't want it falling into the wrong hands. I know James could take care of it. I can go look if you want. You understand, Ben, the need to be discreet? Absolutely. You know, the last few years... You need to tell Tony I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm sure she'll appreciate it. Obviously, I won't be able to make the funeral, but... No, we realize. I need to see if I can get in touch with James. Thanks for calling. It was a phone call that would echo through the years. Who knew Mary had a secret diary? What was in it? And what would happen to it after her death? In July of 1965... Ray Crump Jr. went on trial for the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer. Police suspicion wasn't only drawn from Ray's presence near the crime scene and lack of a clear alibi. Ray was poor and black. Which made him the perfect suspect for the police in the 1960s. The police even noted that his fly was open when they first found him, supporting the theory that Mary's death was sexual assault gone wrong. Also supporting that theory, a much later testimony from Ray's ex-wife, who described him as prone to violent episodes, and showed one Mary Meyer biographer a scar on her neck made by Ray's knife. And how do we know she wasn't just an angry ex? Well, later in life, Ray would be arrested 22 times 
His crimes included arson and uh, raping a 13-year-old girl. Oof, that does sound incriminating. But remember, at the time, Ray was just a lower-class laborer who didn't want to admit what he'd been up to that afternoon. So the trial began. In an unusual move, the presiding judge set restrictions on what could be discussed about the victim. I'm setting down the ground rules now. There will be no discussion of Mrs. Meyer's private life. It's not relevant, and it won't be brought up in my courtroom. Is that clear? Later, the defense attorney, Dovey Johnson Roundtree, would remark, It was as if she existed only on the towpath on the day she was murdered. But Dovey had a bigger problem, figuring out her client's alibi. Coffee? No, thank you, ma'am. So where were you? Excuse me? I don't beat around the bush. Where were you coming from when Mary was killed? I need to know to defend you. Oh, uh... What brought you uh, to the towpath? Big pardon, ma'am. I'd rather not say. You damn better say. I believe you're innocent. I took your case for a goddamn single dollar. We are not losing. I don't want to get my personal beeswax involved. If my mama found out... Don't tell anyone. I was... He was hanky-panky. Oh. Well, if you and your wife needed time alone from the children... She weren't my wife. Oh. See why I need to keep it quiet-like? I'll figure something out. So Dovey would have to build her defense a different way and hope for flaws in the prosecution. Once the trial got underway, there was interesting testimony from Ben Bradley. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Mr. Bradley, on the night of October 12th, did you make any effort to gain entrance to your sister-in-law's art studio? Yes. Now, besides the usual articles of Mrs. Maya's avocation, did you find there any other articles of her personal property? There was a pocketbook there. A pocketbook? It contained keys, a wallet, cosmetics, and pencils. So, nothing about a diary? Nothing about a diary. Through the mechanic who was there on the street, the prosecution tried to establish that Ray Crump was at the murder scene. We saw him standing over the body. And they called a man who had been jogging by as a witness. I saw a large black individual who appeared to be following Mrs. Meyer. And was this man the same size as Mr. Crump? Yes. And he was wearing dark slacks and a golf hat. Just as Mr. Crump was when he was arrested? However, Dovey Johnson Roundtree was able to poke holes in the eyewitness testimony. How tall was the man you saw following Mrs. Meyer? How tall? Yes. How tall? About my height. Five foot eight. And how much did he weigh? I don't know. It doesn't have to be exact, just approximately. Uh, 190, 200 pounds. Would it surprise you to know that the man you saw and just described is two inches taller and 50 pounds heavier than Mr. Crump? And it became clear that there was no forensic evidence linking Crump to the murder. Officer, due to the nature of this shooting, this victim bled profusely, correct? That's correct. And did you find any blood at all on the defendant? No, ma'am. Hairs, fibers, fingerprints? No. What about a weapon? Did you find a gun on him? No. You're claiming he committed this murder and was apprehended at the scene and the gun just disappeared into thin air? I don't know. Maybe he threw it in the canal. Did you find any connection between my client and a gun? A criminal can get a gun anywhere. Move to strike, non-responsive. Objection sustained. After closing arguments, the jury only deliberated for 11 hours. Members of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. How say you? In the matter of People versus Ray Crump Jr., 
on the charge of murder in the first degree, we find the defendant not guilty. For those who closely followed the trial, the acquittal of Ray Crump did not come as a surprise. But of course, the bigger question still loomed. If Ray Crump didn't kill Mary Pinchot Meyer, who did? On the next episode of Unsolved Murders, we dive deeper into the case of Mary Pinchot Meyer. If we print this story, you need to go on the record and confirm the affair, as well as the other details. Absolutely. We learn more about her relationship to President Kennedy. Why don't you leave suburbia for once? Come and see me, either here or at the Cape next week, or in Boston the 19th. I know it's unwise, irrational, and that you may hate it. On the other hand, you may not. And I will love it. We explore her misgivings about Kennedy's assassination. Calm down, Mary. I'm telling you, they killed him because they couldn't control him anymore. And with the Warren Commission report. This isn't right. It was a conspiracy. We discover how Ben Bradley... Woodward and Bernstein, get in here. The man who would make his name serving the public by finding and exposing the truth... What do you got for me, boys? We're following the money. Let's connect the dots, but we know how it ends, right? This goes right to Nixon and the office of the president. Participated in his own cover-up. We find out the role James Jesus Angleton played after Mary was killed. The place is locked. Well, that's not going to be a problem. And open the door to possible CIA involvement in Mary Pinchot Meyer's murder. And finally, we try to answer the question. Somebody help me! Somebody help me! Who killed Mary Pinchot Meyer? Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us for the next installment. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein and written by Stephen DeLello. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Janice Liebhart, Nicholas Massu, Manu Narayan, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>